Thanks for your interest in Emmanuel Baptist. Here at Emmanuel, we believe in the one and only authoritative text for guidance, the Holy Bible. We pray that this sermon will speak to your heart and open your eyes to the glory of God. Make sure you plug into your local church and get to know others that love the Holy Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just like you. Thanks again, and God bless you guys. When you hear the word heaven, what comes to comes your mind? I think in our popular culture, uh, when we think of heaven, we think of, uh, of departed loved ones who have these white robes on with halos and wings and a harp and they're floating on clouds. I'm not sure that's what heaven is, but that's kind of the popular view we have. Sometimes with heaven, we think of uh, departed loved ones. We think of a spouse or uh, children or uh, grandparents or friends that have died and gone on. And we're looking forward to being with them one day. And also in popular culture, we think of the kingdom of heaven. When you die, you stand in line in front of the great gate of heaven and you see St. Peter. And he's the one who lets you in or not. You may have other thoughts about heaven when you hear the word heaven. Now, if you asked a Jew during Jesus' day, if, if, when Jesus was, was walking and teaching and preaching there in that first century, and you would be in a crowd and you would talk with a, a fellow Jew uh, at that time, and you asked them, what is heaven? What, how would you describe heaven? I think they would say something like, heaven is when God is on his throne. Heaven is going to be when God rules from the temple. Rules from Jerusalem, and he be the and Israel will be the number one nation in the world again. All the nations will come to Jerusalem to see the king. That's what all the prophets talk about. That that's going to be a time when Israel is back in its place, no longer under foreign dominion. Now, if you remember, um, especially as we're going through the E100 and and the cosmic drama. Um, about 586 is when the southern kingdom of Judah was defeated by Babylon and many were taken into captivity, into, into exile. From that point on, even to the point of Jesus, except for a brief 100-year period, Israel was under the domination of some foreign power. It was Babylon, then the Medes and Persians took over and let some go back to the Holy Land if they wanted to, but they still were under the thumb of the Medes and Persians. After the empire left, we have the Greeks Alexander the Greek and, and his generals later on for another couple hundred years. And then about in the first century B.C., the Rome came in. And we come here to the first century A.D., and Rome is in charge. So for over 500 years, with one exception, almost 600 years, with one exception of about a 100-year period, Israel has been under the domination of some foreign power. So when they, when they hear the word kingdom of God, when Jesus was preaching here in Matthew, king, kingdom of heaven, I'm sure they're thinking about God ruling. God is going to be bring us to deliverance. God will make us the number one nation. All the nations will come to us. There'll be peace. There'll be security. There'll be joy. There'll be happiness when God is ruling. Now, if you've been a student of the Bible, and all of you in this room are, as you've been reading through the Gospels recently and, and times past, this is Jesus' main topic of discussion when he's teaching and preaching is the kingdom of heaven. Before we get into more detail of that, let me just review very quickly 
the cosmic drama. I hope you're getting this into your system now. Act one, the cosmic drama, is creation, Genesis 1 and 2. God creates things. It's very good. Great. Act two is the fall, Genesis 3 through 11. Adam and Eve uh, sinned. Cain killed Abel. There's wickedness all over the whole world, and God brings a flood and then starts over again. There's more wickedness in the Tower of Babel, and God disperses them because man is so egotistical. And things are really bad, uh, Genesis 3 through 11. Act 3 is Israel, which is from Genesis 12 through the rest of the Old Testament to Malachi. And we start with Abraham and the covenant with Abraham. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, these were the patriarchs, that's scene 1. And then we have theocracy, which is scene 2, where God is the king. As he takes the children of Israel out of Egypt and uh, through Moses, God is king with the Mount Sinai covenant. You'll be my people and I'll be your God. All the way up until we get the, uh, the prophet Samuel. And the people wanted a king like everybody else. And Samuel didn't like that. But God said, I'm rejecting not you, Samuel, rejecting me. So this is the time of the monarchy when they have kings. So we have three kings who are king of, of all of Israel, all 12 tribes, Saul and David and... Who's, I guess you're not with me. Not quite. Solomon, yeah, I was going too fast and you weren't keeping up with me. Uh, Saul, David, and Solomon were the kings of all of Israel, the United Kingdom. After Saul died, the kingdom divided in two. The northern kingdom was Israel and southern kingdom Judah. And they had about 20, 19 to 20 kings each. The kings up north were all bad. They're all evil. The kings down south, a little less than half were good, and most of them were evil. So this is, we still got the monarchy. This is the, uh, the, fourth, the third scene. And then, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, we have this exile. Babylon, well, Assyria uh, defeats the northern kingdom of Israel and disperses them. About 150 years later, uh, Babylon, the big boy on the block, defeats Judah and takes many of those into captivity. Think Daniel, for instance, uh, and Ezekiel. They're in, they're in exile for 70 years, and then the Medes and Persians take over and let those who want to go back to the promised land go back. And some did go back. Uh, that's uh, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, and, and throw in Esther too. That's kind of that, that time frame. And then we come to Act 4, because Act, Act 2 and 3, God talks about this deliverer, this redeemer to come through Abraham, through Noah, well, uh, Abraham, uh, through David. Uh, Jeremiah talks about a, a new covenant. Uh, and so in Act 4 is the Messiah. And the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are telling us about this Messiah. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke said this Messiah, from a human perspective, is Jesus. And John, we saw earlier, he takes a heaven down. This, is, this Messiah is God himself, the Word of God. And so in the, in the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see Jesus' life, his teachings, uh, miracles, uh, so forth, the cross, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, all this is an act for the Messiah. So that's kind of a very brief overview of the cosmic drama that, that we're kind of stepping through with our E100. Now, let's get back to thinking about Jesus' main topic of teaching and preaching, the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, let's look at a few verses in the gospel according to Matthew. If you take your Bibles, turn to Matthew 3. Matthew 3, just for a moment. This is when John the Baptist comes on the scene. 
Now, John the Baptist calls it quite a stir because he's the first prophet of God since Malachi. It's been about 400 years, more or less, 450 years, since they had a prophet of God come on the scene, and John the Baptist comes on the scene and causes quite a stir. Let's look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So his message was, repent, turn from your sin, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was his message. Next chapter, chapter 4, verse 17. Now, Jesus has been baptized by John. He's gone to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And then he begins his ministry. And look at verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to teach, preach, that is, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the same message John gave. They're on the same page. So Jesus' main emphasis in his teaching and preaching was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now let's just look at some other verses in Matthew and chapter 5 we have the, the, the famous Sermon on the Mount. And look at verse 3. Jesus said, blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There it is again. Chapter 5 verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, this is Jesus talking, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He continues kingdom of heaven. Toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, verse 21, Matthew 7, 21, Jesus again is speaking. If you've got a red letter edition of the Bible, it's in red. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven. Chapter 8, verse 11. Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table of Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, in the kingdom of heaven. Continues on. Chapter 10, verse 7. Here he's... uh, He's, he's called the 12 apostles to him, and he's given them instructions to go out and minister. And in chapter 10, verse 7, he says to them, And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist said this. Jesus said this. Jesus is teaching the disciples or his apostles to say the same thing. The kingdom of heaven. This is a crucial, crucial concept uh, in Jesus' ministry. There are others we can go through, but you can get the, the flavor that, that this is an important thing. This is Jesus' main teaching and preaching in his earthly ministry is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, let's go back to chapter 13. Let's look at these parables that we just read a moment ago. Uh, in, in fact, chapter 13 is all full of parables. Uh, just, just a side note about the gospel writers. Uh, Matthew didn't write things in a chronological order. This happened, then this happened, then this happened, and this happened. That's like we like to read that, but that's not the way Matthew does. He does it thematically. He puts things kind of in groups. Here in chapter 13, I think he has about 11, I think about 11 parables all in one place. I don't think Jesus gave these parables one after the other one afternoon. I think he told these parables over and over again, and Matthew took these and put them all together in one place here in Matthew 13 about the kingdom of God and what Jesus' teaching was, because he taught a lot in parables. So let's look at verse 31 and 32 again. 
He says, they put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown as large as all the garden plants, becomes a tree. So the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now, these parables usually are something natural that has a kind of a supernatural point to it. The kingdom of heaven seems to be really small, almost insignificant. But once it grows, it becomes very profound. It becomes very influential. And I think, I think we kind of see that throughout church history as, we, as, as Jesus has 12. He starts with 12 apostles and ends up with 11. It goes backwards. But at the day of Pentecost, it's 120 disciples. And for the disciples, 120 till today, in 2021, there's about almost 8 billion people in the world. And I would say probably 3 billion, 2.5, 3 billion, I guess, claim the name of Jesus in the world. I'm not saying they're all Christians, but they claim the name of Jesus. Talking about Protestant churches, Roman Catholic churches, Eastern Orthodox churches. So it's about a large percentage. That's a lot. Go from 120 to 2 billion. This is kind of being lived out here. Now, let me share a story from, from church history that, that kind of shows what happens when this mustard seed dies and, and how it grows. Uh, this comes from a story of uh, Telemarchus, who lived about A.D. 400, about A.D. 400. He was a hermit of the desert, but something told him, I guess you call it the call of God, that he must go to Rome. He went, and Rome at this time was nominally Christian, but even in Christian Rome, the gladiatorial games went on. The gladiators in, in the Colosseum would fight, fight to the death, in which they fought, men fought each other, and the crowds roared the lust of blood. Until Marcus found his way to the games. He went to Rome. He felt called of God to go there. 80,000 people were there to, 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 to see the games. You've seen the Colosseum. It was packed. It's like a football field today. 80,000 people. That, that's, that's a lot. And when he got there, he was horrified. Were these men slaughtering other men? Are they not also children of God, people who God created? So he leaped from his seat right into the arena and stood between the gladiators that were fighting. He was tossed aside. He came back. The, ang- the, the crowd was angry and they began to stone him. Still, he struggled back between the gladiators, keep them from fighting. And the perfect's command rang out. And a sword flashed in the sunlight until Marcus was dead. Suddenly, there was a hush. Suddenly, the crowd realized what had happened. A holy man lay dead. Something happened that day in Rome, for there were never again any gladiatorial games. By his death, one man had let loose something that cleansed an empire. Wow, what one man can do. He lost his life like a little mustard seed, one man, but changed the whole empire. They stopped having those horrific games. Verse 33, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. I did a lot of research on this because I'm not a cook, but I just I found out that yeast doesn't grow. Now, you cooks know that already. Yeast doesn't grow. It permeates. It transforms. Yeast changes the makeup of the product it's put into. When you put yeast into a lump of dough, 
what happens? It begins to rise. It changes what's there. When the kingdom of God, which is a rule and ways of God, is accepted, it changes people's lives. When you come into the kingdom, you get that little leaven, and it changes everything in your life and changes culture around us. Then in verse 44, he mentions this uh, kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys a field. That's interesting. Just imagine that. He's, I guess he's walking. Who knows why he's walking? And he sees this treasure. Now, how he sees it, I don't know. But he realizes how valuable this is. So he keeps it covered. He, takes all his, he finds all his assets, all his resources. He sells his house. He unloads his bank account. He does everything he does. He, he liquidates everything so he can go and buy this piece of property, which has this great treasure on it. This is so, so, so important to him, materially-wise, that he sold everything he had to buy that. The lesson here is worth any price to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's worth any price that you can pay to get in because it is so valuable. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Now, the other guy just stumbled upon that treasure. This guy is looking for something valuable. He's looking for fine pearls, who on finding the one pearl of great price, went and sold all he had and bought it. The point here is that everything is to be sold, like the other parable, and sacrificed to gain the kingdom of heaven. Now, just imagine yourself in the first century. You're a Jewish peasant, Jewish merchant, and you hear Jesus teaching these parables. The kingdom of heaven is like, and I wonder what you're thinking. If nothing else, I'm sure they don't fully understand Jesus, and those who have ears to hear will hear, and those who don't, don't. But they're saying, oh, this kingdom of heaven, this is valuable. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is so valuable, it's worth anything. It's worth everything. And this is the top priority in, in my life, it needs to be the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 47, to 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that's thrown into the sea and gather the fish of every kind. And he talks about how they, they bring it in and, and they keep the good fish and they throw the bad fish away. And, and this, is at, at, uh, this is what happens at the end of the age, verse 49 says. This is judgment day. But the kingdom of heaven is like this. There's going to be judgment. There's going to be a separation. Kingdom of heaven. Turn to chapter 16 just for a moment, please, of, of Matthew. Jesus taking the disciples on a little R&R &R and a little instruction, and he asked the question, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter, standing for the, for the 12, says, you are the Christ, son of the living God. And, and, and Jesus says, you got an A-plus on that exam. And then he tells Peter, because he's the one that professes this in verse 19, I give you, Peter, and those who have faith, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. That's another sermon. Can't get into the details of what he's talking about here. Chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
and called him a child and put him in the midst of them. He said, truly I say to you, unless you turn, become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He's given some, some teaching what it means to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's not by money. It's not by prestige. It's not by influence or power. Busting your way in is through faith like a little child. I'm sure they're almost kind of scratching their head. What, what, what? The kingdom of heaven. And then if you remember, turning back to the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, um, when Jesus, in part of the Sermon on the Mount, is giving what we call the Lord's Prayer, verses 9 and 10, as he concludes his, well, that concludes it, but he says, pray like this, uh, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think that's a powerful passage, another sermon in itself. But he's talking about the kingdom of God that's in heaven, called God rules heaven, but we're looking, pray that God's kingdom will come on earth as well. We'll unpack that a little more in just a moment. So let me, let me just say, what, what is Jesus talking about here? This, this is his main emphasis is the kingdom of heaven what he's talking about. Now, let me, let me quickly say, uh, and I've, I've slipped a few times already, uh, the kingdom of heaven is, is identical to the kingdom of God. Now, Matthew says kingdom of heaven. Uh, Mark and Luke says kingdom of God. They are identical. They're not two separate things. They're identical. And the reason Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven, because Matthew's written to a, a kind of a, a Jewish audience. You can read through Matthew and tell he's writing to people who knew, understand the Jewish way of life and Jewish stuff. And Jews of their day, and really religious Jews today, don't say the word God. That's too sacred for them. In, in, fact, in fact, if you see some Jewish writings today, people who really believe in the, the, the God of the Bible, not all Jews do today, but they'll, they'll spell God, instead of G-O-D, they'll spell it G-D. They won't spell it out. Even the word God, they won't spell it out, because that's such a holy name to them. So when Matthew is talking here in his gospel account, he's writing for people with a lot of Jewish sensitivities. He's not going to say kingdom of God. That's just a little offensive. Did you remember... <laughs> In the mark, when, when Jesus is in front of the high priest and, and, and things aren't going well for the high priest, and he cuts to the chase and asks Jesus, are you the son of the blessed one? He doesn't say, are you the son of God? He would never say that. But are you the son of the blessed one? Same thing. <laughs> but he wouldn't say God. So that's kind of the sensitivities here. So kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven are identical. Now, what, what does that mean? you got a kingdom. Well, several things that you got to have if you got a kingdom. Number one, you've got to have a king, right? You've got to have a king to have a kingdom. So obviously, Jesus is talking about God. And I think as you read through the scriptures, he's talking about himself. And we'll get that in just a moment. But if you have a kingdom, you've got to have a king and you've got to have subjects to the king. You've got to have a people. Well, the people in the Old Testament was Israel. They were God's people. Today, and Jesus, well, from Pentecost on, it's the church. God is the king, and he rules his subjects, his people. And where God reigns or rules in the hearts of men and women, 
we have the kingdom of God. In heaven, also on earth. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are born again, if you're part of God's family, you are in the kingdom of God. We'll spend a little time on this Wednesday night as we look at that next statement of the Baptist faith and message on the kingdom of God, or, or just or the kingdom. Um, we are in the kingdom now, and of course, the kingdom of God is ruling. God rules in heaven. Now, we're talking about something spiritual. Yes, He rules our hearts and our lives, but it's also physical, earthly. How we live our lives on earth. It's not just pie in the sky by and by. It's reality today. Um, as you read, especially um, Paul in, in particular, his letters, he's really talking about, he gives some good theology who Jesus is and, and salvation and those things, and those are really good for us. But use the second half of his letters, he talks about how do you live as Christians? What, what are Christian ethics? It basically, it's life in the Spirit. How, how, do you, how do you live with each other? How do you live with people in the church? How do you live with those outside the church? That's what Paul talks about so often, it's practical stuff. How to walk in the Spirit. How to have life in the Spirit. That's what it means to be kingdom. Be kingdom people. Now, what was Jesus thinking? What was back of Jesus' mind when he's talking about this, this kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God? This is the Old Testament theme. All through the Old Testament, we see God is king. God is the ruler, and we are his subjects. We see this, obviously, at the uh, Mount Sinai, but we see it all through the Old Testament. God is the king, and he wants a people. You can turn or you can listen uh, back to Daniel 7 in the Old Testament. And we went through Daniel some months ago uh, here from the pulpit. And maybe you remember some of that. But in Daniel 7 through 12 are different visions and, and dreams that Daniel had. It's somewhat kind of weird. But Daniel 7 is, is such an important place. Uh, verses 13 and 14. Daniel 7. Can you find Daniel? That's not too far away from where we are. Uh, Daniel 7, 13, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, he has a vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So again, he's saying this person like a son of man, like a human, you might say, and this is where, this is Jesus' favorite term for himself, the son of man. I think he's getting this from this passage. And, and the Son of Man, that this person like a Son of Man, came and was presented to the Ancient of Days. That's God on His throne. And was presented to Him. Verse 14. And to Him, this person like a Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Man, that's good stuff. So this, this being, like a son of man, that sounds kind of like human, but he's going, to, he's going to rule a kingdom forever. What kind of person rules a kingdom forever? A forever kind of person. So we have kind of a human here and kind of a divine person here in the same picture. That's kind of weird, but that's Jesus, isn't it? That's Jesus. But he has this kingdom that will last Forever, I'm sure Jesus is, is, is picking up on this, and I think a lot of his 
people listening to him are picking up on this too. The high priest understood this. Again, that passage in Mark, when he asked, are you son of the blessed one? Jesus says, yes. And we see the son of man coming on the clouds. He meant coming up and being presented to in, in Daniel 7. He's saying, this being in Daniel 7 is me. And that's when um, the high priest had a real fit. He tore his clothes, blasphemy, because he understood what Jesus was saying. That he, he's saying, I'm, I'm the being that's in Daniel 7. I'm going to be the ruler. I'm going to be the king of the kingdom. That's audacious, if it's not true. Just listen. Last book of the Bible, Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. I'm about ready to burst in song with the hallelujah chorus. The hallelujah, you know, from... Uh, so that, he, he takes it from that passage. But he's talking about an eternal kingdom. And of course, chapter 21 of Revelation is, is the new heavens and new earth. The new Jerusalem comes down to this renewed earth, through this new heavens and new earth. And, and this is a kingdom of which God rules from new Jerusalem forever and ever and ever. All these kind of get packaged together about the kingdom of God as a hand. So what's the point here, Pastor? The point here is that God's kingdom is so valuable, it's worth everything you have to get it. You say, what makes God's kingdom so valuable that it's worth everything I have to get it? I got three things as we conclude. First of all, it's powerful. Daniel 2, that's another vision Daniel had, or he interpreted a dream, Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel 2.34, he mentions a rock that was cut out not by human hands, and it comes down and crushes the earthly kingdoms of iron, clay, and silver. It becomes, then it becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. This is a picture of Jesus' kingdom. And in verse 34 of that same chapter, Daniel says that this is the picture of God's kingdom. It is so powerful that it's going to crush every other kingdom and take over the whole world. Now, we're in the midst of a presidential campaign. And, and other countries have campaigns, too, for their premier, for their president, prime minister, everything. And sometimes we think, this is it. This, this is the most powerful thing we can do is elect a president and what's going to happen soon is we elect a president, the next day it will be campaigning for the next four years from now. That's the way it's happening in our country, unfortunately. We're campaigning all the time. We think that's so important. And it is important to a certain degree, electing leaders. But this kingdom we call North Carolina or United States of America, it's not going to last forever. There's an eternal kingdom that Jesus is going to rule. It's powerful. John 1.12 says that when we receive Christ, he gives you the power to become the children of God. He gives you power to become the man or woman of God he's always wanted you to be. So the kingdom of God is powerful. Second, number two, the kingdom of God is eternal. After being humbled by God, King Nebuchadnezzar concludes, or concedes that is, in Daniel 4.34, God's dominion is an ever, eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. So, friends, listen. When you repent of your sins to follow Jesus, you become a part of the kingdom family that's going to reign forever and forever. In fact, Paul says that we will judge angels. And what does that mean? I don't know. 
but there's a kingdom we're going to have a part of that we'll be giving responsibilities in of ruling with him. It's powerful. It's eternal. And number three, it's beautiful. Psalm 145.11 says, They will tell the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all men may know of your mighty acts and glorious splendor of your kingdom. This is valuable. It's powerful. It's eternal. It's beautiful. Some time ago I was reading about Rifka Bari. She was 18 years old at the time, and she was raised a Muslim. But she accepted Christ when she was in high school. And she ran away from home because she was afraid her people might kill her. Unfortunately, this is a very familiar story across the Middle East and other Muslim nations and even other peoples as well. People have told her, you're crazy. Why would you give a good relationship with your family to follow Jesus Christ? She said, it's because of God's radical love for me. A friend of mine brought me to church. I saw people raising their hands and worshiping God and expressing their love. I had never seen anything like that before. Then the pastor preached the gospel. He talked about how God loves me so much that he sent his one and only son to die on the cross for my sins. I told myself, I want God to love me like that. So I went forward to the front of the church. I kneeled at the altar and gave my life to Christ. And I want people to know that it was worth it. Some cases, our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world have given everything to follow Jesus and, and do not back down. Family persecutes them. Some some try to kill them. Sometimes it's, it's, it's the community. Sometimes it's the government. Um, but many, I just, uh, uh, the persecuted church so inspires me what they go through not to renounce Jesus. So looking over these parables in chapter 13 in particular, in, in context one to the other, I think we have some questions we need to ask and need to answer. First of all, are we like the men who find a precious treasure, whether accidentally or intentionally, and we are joyful and excited about our discovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Can you think back when you fully understood the gospel and you embraced it? When you came to faith in Jesus, do you remember that time? It might have been real emotional, might not have been emotional. But I think, hopefully, you, you can remember the, the joyfulness and the excitement about the discovery of your sins being forgiven and who Jesus is and being part of the family of God. Second, do we understand the real value of it, the real worth of the kingdom of God? Are we willing to give up everything to possess it. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying you've got to earn it. You've got to give something up and, and get some money and, and pay and earn the kingdom of God. You don't earn it. But once you come into it, God calls you to die to self. And sometimes he says, you need to give this up. It may be some money. It may be some habit. It may be some relationship. God deals with his subjects as he wills. But sometimes to follow him, means we must surrender. I like how C.S. Lewis says in one of his books, he says, he's, God doesn't call us to turn a leaf. We do that on New Year's Eve, New Year's Day. I'm going to turn new, over a new leaf this year. Uh, he says, no. He says, what we are, Lewis says, we are rebels to God, and we must lay down our arms unconditionally. 
We must surrender to God, not turn over a new leaf. Are we willing to say to God, I turn myself completely over to you, surrendering all, keeping nothing back? And friends, is there an excitement in your heart and in your life about the good news of Jesus Christ and the good news of, of the kingdom? Can I keep it to myself? Or can I not wait to share it with somebody else to know how valuable it is? Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. It is good news about a king of a kingdom who redeems us, who saves us, who is Lord over all. He calls us to surrender. He calls us to give our complete allegiance to him. This kingdom is not just the by and by, going to heaven when I die, but it's here and now. It's his rule on earth as it is in heaven. Would you pray with me, please? Jesus, thank you for the words of Matthew and really of uh, Mark and Luke and in a different way, John. In a different way, Paul as well, the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, your rule. And may you be our personal king and the king of this church, the king of our culture, the king. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's stand and sing hymn number 305. I have decided to follow Jesus. Poland did. Are you familiar with this? Poland put in their constitution or made it public that Jesus is the king of Poland. Uh, seriously. I mean, it's a pretty Catholic nation, but uh, not for Poland. Poland's, you know, so they've made it, in front of, we say, in front of God and everybody, <laughs> that Jesus is the king of our nation. Uh, may we do the same. We're doing the same in different ways, maybe not saying that so directly, but in many ways we do, but may we continue to do that. Let me close this in prayer, and I'll pray for the food now. And whenever the ladies are ready to release us to get to the plates, we'll do that. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to worship. We thank you for the opportunity just to gather, have a good meal together and fellowship together and have a time of, of looking at what you're doing in our church. Bless the food, Father, to our bodies and keep our bodies healthy so we can serve you in your kingdom's work here now. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.